0: Father, we are grateful for this blessed Lord's Day, the one day in seven that you've given us to rest, to come into your house and lift up our voices with praise and thanksgiving, to hear your word preached. And uh, this morning as we dig into the letter of 1 Timothy, we pray that you'd give us wisdom and an insight into your word, help us to see the truths, to um, be convicted of sin and driven to Christ. And we pray this through his strong name, and amen. All right, so we're continuing in our series in First Timothy. Um, Timothy is Paul's protege, his uh, apprentice, if you will, in the gospel ministry. He's a young man. You know, the average um, life expectancy of a person in the first century is 37 years old, so... Um, you know, uh, Jesus lived <laughs> quite a life, actually. And, you know, he died as a young man at 33 or 34. And so uh, um, y- you can imagine that Timothy is probably in his early 20s um, and uh, follows Paul in his ministry for the better part of a decade, uh, the third and fourth missionary journeys before Paul sends him these concluding uh, letters. First and Second Timothy is surely when Paul is imprisoned um, at, at at some point. Possibly he he at least thinks it's the end. So, um, but First Timothy is earlier on, and he is writing to encourage Timothy. Um, it has uh, it has the flavor of. Uh, sort of peering over the shoulder of a mentor as he encourages his young protege in the faith and there's a a lot for us to glean from this not least about what Paul's expectations for the church were um is that getting is that being picked up okay good um but also uh you know Paul's personal charges To Timothy, how he should conduct himself, not just as a pastor, but as a a man of God, as somebody who's called um, to uh, minister the gospel. But um, what we find is a lot of practical, down-to-earth application of Paul's gospel to ministry and the life of the church. And so um, we saw last week that um, Paul had urged Timothy to remain at Ephesus. Why did he do that? Does anyone remember? Right, he knew that false teachers that would come in, certain persons who would teach different doctrines. um, and, And Paul told them that the result of true doctrine is what? How would you know if somebody's teaching... False doctrine or something that it is in line with the truth. What's the best evidence of that? Right, he says in verse 5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But what, what is the false teaching known by? We're kind of recapping 1 Timothy um, 1, 3 through 8. Yeah. Division, speculation, um, you know, these things that, uh, you know, swerving from the truth, you wander into vain discussions. Um, and these teachers, they think they know what they're talking about, but they don't actually know what they're talking about. Um, they want to be those like the Pharisees who are teachers of the law, but they don't really understand the law, at least in the way that they should. And so I the reason I want to come back to this is, is picking up kind of at verse 8 is because we didn't really finish the discussion I'd wanted on the law and the relationship of the law to the Christian believer. Paul says in verse 8 there, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. How do we use the law lawfully? And how is it good? I thought it was a condemnation. I thought it was just do this and live. So how can Paul say that the law is good, if we use it lawfully. How can it be good? And here we need to draw on our theology, right? We need to under—we need to draw on covenant theology. Um, why? Why is it important to understand covenant theology to understand the law? Ken. Yeah. Yeah. hmm It shows us the character of God. Yep. it shows us our God. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it shows us the righteousness of God. We see the very character of God. We get it as a rule of life, how we are to live. But uh, but it, what I'm thinking of in particular is there is a sense in which our relationship to the law is just condemnation. And that there is a sense of our relationship to the law which is grace. And um, its purpose is made known in... um, And so, those two relationships are what we would call two different covenants. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Right? We begin... um, all of us, outside of Christ, are under the covenant of works. That is, just do this and live. If you fail to do it, you receive the just condemnation of having failed to keep the law. Right? But is that our relationship to the law as Christians? No. Right? We are now not under the covenant of works, but we are under the covenant of grace. Because Christ has fulfilled the covenant of works. Can somebody turn to Romans chapter 8? We're going to read a a sizable portion of Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. Somebody wants to read from verse 1 to verse 11. Don't be shy. Go ahead, Dale. You got it? Read loud.
1: But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in
0: you. Amen. Paul begins there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So... Our relationship to the law is changed based on where you are. Are you in the first Adam whose sin was a type who led all of humanity into that sin? That's the covenant of works, right? We're all under that condemnation. But for those who by faith are united to Christ, there's now no condemnation and he he goes on to say that god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do what was that what did god do that the flesh could not do by itself what's that forgive sin, forgive sin. specifically justified the unrighteous right you you know if if it were possible and what this text is saying is that it's not because of the weakness of the flesh, but if it were possible for you to keep all of the commandments of God, then you would be right in God's sight. You would be just. You would be righteous. But unfortunately, because of the weakness of the flesh, right, we're not able to do that. So God comes, He sends His Son um, to set you free in Christ, Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's the law as a covenant of works. We're freed from the covenant of works, right? We have no condemnation as it relates to the law. So when I come to the Ten Commandments and I read it, I don't have any condemnation that is over my head. I have been declared righteous in Christ Jesus because he fulfilled all those requirements that I could never fulfill given the weakness of my sinful flesh. So he he continues. Um, by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, so he came, he meets all the terms of somebody who can be a man, who can function as a representative head, like Adam. And he fulfills the law's requirements so that it might those righteous requirements might be fulfilled in us. That is, what Jesus did by obedience to the law is now imputed to you. And you have a new relationship to the law. Right? You're not under condemnation any longer. It's the same law, but now Paul calls it the law of the spirit of life. Right? It doesn't lead to condemnation because the law is a bare statement of fact, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't include with it the power to accomplish that law, right? You need something else. Um, for us, that is the spirit at work in us. Um, so Paul is, is he, he's setting these two things right next to each other. There's the law of sin and death. We would call that as theologians, the covenant of works. There's the law of the spirit of life. They're not different, But our relationship to them is different, right? One functions as the way that you get righteousness. And the other one says you can't get righteousness on your own. The only way you can get righteousness is by being in the one who is righteous. So those two relationships to the law are important. So imagine that you don't understand that. You don't understand the gospel, because that's what I've just articulated, and then you go and try to teach the law. Where are you going to go wrong? What's your teaching going to result in? Moralism, Moralism. yeah. Right? I mean, because you've got prescriptions, do this, how? How do I do it? Where does the power come from? How do I accomplish something that is just tells me, do this and live? Well, you know, you can't. So this is what Paul is laboring to show. And the reason I wanted to go back is because it directly relates to the next section uh, that we're going to talk about today. But we have to understand the proper use of the law. And otherwise, if you don't understand the gospel, you're not going to get the law right. You're, you're going to miss it. You're going to turn it into, one, a way for you to earn favor with God, which is just works righteousness, which we would just usually call legalism, right? It's a way for you to turn the good things of the law back into a law of sin and death, right? Because every time you fail, what, where do you flee to? What, what recourse do you have if you fail the law? You have no hope, right? You are constantly driven back to yourself, and, um, and you, can't, you can't look to somebody else because you've just got to do, 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 do. You have to do it. And, uh, and that's why Paul is saying, you've got to stay in Ephesus and confront these people because they are doing in damage to the church because they don't understand the gospel. They want to be teachers of the law. The law is good, right? We've been, if you've been following the Hope Bible reading plan, we've been in Psalm one hundred nineteen for a couple days. And uh the psalmist is delight it's just dripping with delight in the law of God. He loves the law. It's his delight he, he can't get enough of it. And that's the attitude we should have as Christians, right? Because No, no longer does it have that condemnation over us, but it's, it's by the spirit, the way that we conform our lives to who Christ is, to what he has done. And, uh, yes, we fail and we're driven back again to the only one who has accomplished it. The only one who has satisfied those righteous requirements, which was Christ Jesus. And so, uh. So, it's important for Paul that um, Timothy understands the use of the law. Now, we, we mentioned last time that there were three uses of the law. So, I've just articulated the, 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 the use of the law as a rule of life. But what are the other two uses? Did you have a question? Yeah. Sure. So, is it kind of like a republication? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, kind of, but but obviously, it's. a The best way to look at the two covenants, those two covenants, which are theological terms that we we extrapolate from Scripture, right? We don't. We find covenants in Scripture. the, the there's enough evidence that there's a covenant with Adam that there's a covenant with Noah, that there's a covenant with Abraham, that there's a covenant with David, and there's a new covenant. These are like layers of a cake that are being built on top of each other. They're not superseding the one that comes before. They don't nullify or erase, but they build on top. But in terms of the theological construct of covenant of works, covenant of grace, it's best to view it as a triangle. They both are continuing forever forever. What holds the damned in hell? They failed to keep the covenant of works. That will remain for all of eternity. What holds the elect in heaven? They are a part of the covenant of grace because they're included in Christ. But the terms of obedience to that is the same. Yes. Exactly. So that's why they're parallel like that. Because there's two covenant heads, right? You have the Adam, and then you have Christ. So that's why we have a two covenantal structure, because we have two heads, Adam and then the second Adam. This is Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, where those two heads represent two covenants. And so the terms that Christ fulfills are the terms that Adam should have fulfilled, right? He should have been obedient, but he wasn't. And so we all inherited death. This is Paul's argument. Let's just turn there in Romans 5. This is good because I want to get this structure um, hammered in your head. Paul, Paul's, If Paul can say it's, it's no problem for me to say the same thing to you, then it's not a problem for me to say the same thing either. This Getting this structure is absolutely vital. So let's look at Romans 5 starting in verse 12. I'll read this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so this is the two Adam structure uh, that frames our covenant of grace, our covenant of works, and covenant of grace. Adam is as a covenant head because he sinned. Everybody who's descends from Him, also sinned. That's how death spread to all mankind. right? So His sin was a type. Now Christ comes and He obeys. So the, the terms of the covenant of works, Christ obeys those. And His obedience leads to justification for all those who, for lack of a better term, are descended from Him. right? Those that are included in Him by faith. And that we call imputation, right? We receive His righteousness and His obedience. There's two parts to imputation. There's His active obedience. That's His perfect life. He, was, he never disobeyed any of God's commands. He was positively righteous. And then His passive obedience, which is His death on the cross. And, and both of those things are imputed to us so that we are justified by the work of Christ as a new the covenant of grace. That's what we would call that. So the terminology is not in Scripture, but you can see it's very clearly outlined. And so um, understanding those two things, those two relationships, one, the law has not changed through all of that, right? It's one law. And that's because there's one God. And the law is just a manifestation of the character of God. So... The law hasn't changed, but our relationship to it has. Now, under the covenant of grace, Christ is the one that fulfills the terms. And we, by faith, also have fulfilled the terms, but only by faith, not by our own actual obedience. Does that make sense? Yeah, right, exactly, yeah. Yep, he came to fulfill it, and if you... If you jump down to chapter 10 of Romans, Paul's sort of lamenting the fact that his Jewish brethren aren't getting this. And he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what is the righteousness that the Jews were trying to seek on their own? What were they trying to do? Bill. Yeah, they were trying to fulfill the law, but not, uh, but as a covenant of works, right? To earn God's favor. They weren't obeying the law because they were resting in the Messiah. Yeah, to this day. Yeah. 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 And so Paul is saying they're ignorant of the righteousness of God because they're trying to establish their own. And and the reason why we're going here is because Paul's about to use himself as an example. And he, this was Paul. He was blameless when it comes to the law. At least on the outward parts of the law. Right? I've used this illustration of the, the floor and the ceiling in ethics in the Bible. Can anybody remember what I was talking about? What's the floor of ethics in the Old Testament and the New? What's the very bottom level? Ten Commandments, right? But, you know, I use the illustration of loving your wife. If you don't commit adultery, does that necessarily mean you love your wife? No. I mean, there's much more to loving your wife than just not committing adultery, right? So that's the ceiling. The ideal is always the ceiling. You sort of shoot for the bottom level, but um, the ideal was always obedience to God from the heart, now, the Jews could say, we are blameless when it comes to the ceiling or the floor. But they missed the ceiling entirely. And so they missed what Paul says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, right? So, um, Paul, and when it says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you look at the law without Christ, what what do you do? What do you focus on? Yeah, do do do. You, it's sort of like bootstrap theology, right? You're, I can do this. I can I can get better. I'll will myself into this, and uh, and that. Yeah, usually, that's what happens. But you definitely miss Christ. You don't even. Right, You don't even have a recourse to Him because you're so focused on me doing this. But the, the word end in Greek is goal. Right, This is the aim that we're shooting for. This is the purpose of the law. What is the purpose of the law? Christ. Christ is the purpose of the law. We are meant to be led to Him. We're meant to see that our righteousness comes from Him and that he is that end. It doesn't mean that the law ends like the end of a road. It means the purpose the purpose of the law is Christ for righteousness for everyone who believes. So that's the vital thing for us to see here. fulfillment. fulfillment yeah. Now, I labor that point because it's it's going to be a part of Paul's argument and um and it's a big stumbling block in the Christian life, right? People really struggle with what is the Christian's relationship to the law. And we get off into legalism or we, we reject the law altogether, which is called antinomianism. We don't want to go on either ditch. The law is good if used lawfully. That's what Paul is saying. But if it's not, it's turned into just a huge stumbling block. And it really destroys Christians' lives. It destroys Christian communities because they're not centered on the gospel and they're looking at the law as a way for them to get righteousness. And it ends up just being devastating. But, But then Paul, in verse 9, goes on to describe a use of the law that's different than a rule of life. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he begins to sort of outline all of the latter table of the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and father. Don't murder. You know, so he says, those who strike their fathers and mothers. Murderers, the sexually immoral, that's don't commit adultery. Um, men who practice homosexuality, that's also included in that. enslavers that's um, somebody who is a man-stealer, that's do not steal. And liars, perjurers, those are those who bear false witness. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God with which I have been
1: entrusted. Yeah.
0: yeah right a sense, right um, yeah that. yeah and paul Paul says he didn't know what covetousness was until the law came, and then all of a sudden he's coveting, right I mean this is the kind of uh you know you see this in your kids real real easily. don't touch the stove, what do they want to do, you know? Immediately, touch the stove. It's just natural for us to want to do that thing that is forbidden. And that's what Paul's calling the weakness of the flesh, right? And so the law shows us what is good and what is wrong. We learn the righteous character of God. Matt, do you have another question? Did you have another question? Oh no. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I don't, the, all throughout my time in Bible college and, and when I was in a dispensational seminary, I would—I literally developed insomnia trying to figure
1: out a category for the law in a Christian's life. Yeah. Because yep. there was never an answer for it right. in the dispensational system. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I firmly believe that. And, yeah. And Sure. In my life. They're godly men. Sure. Yeah.
2: But they flatline all of scripture and make it just right. Just, they, they rob the beauty of yeah. the scripture. Yeah. Do, they, do they say that you don't need to read the law or you don't need to
0: read the Old Testament? No, but in practical terms they don't. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but no they
0: don't really spend much time in the book, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is it is a sad thing. I I I personally think dispensationalism is a heresy, right? Because it wrongly divides the scriptures what God has created as a unity, one story of God's redemption. It's not plan A and then whoops, plan B and then somehow we're going to get back around and convoluted charts and all that that's exactly how i grew up too and um and i think it's it does great damage to the sufficiency of scripture all of scripture and it it really messes with the storyline of you really can't make sense of the bible right the new is in the old concealed augustine said and the old is um revealed in the new testament so um we gotta we gotta keep those things together. It makes me think of if you read your kids just a generic story Bible, like what's it, the beginner's Bible, each story is completely separate. It doesn't necessarily right. from one to another. But if you read Sally Lloyd Jones the Jesus Storybook Bible, i I cry it's a kid's <laughs> book because it's like it's just amazing you read your kid the story and it takes every single aspect of the Old Testament and connects it to Jesus. And right the yeah. differences are astounding of yeah. what the separation is to what the connection to Christ yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's our application of our theology. Yeah, go ahead. Can you describe this to me? Yeah, sure. I'll give you the 30,000 foot view because it can be quite complicated. Um Basically, Uh, It's a new, it's newer as in late 19th century uh, by um, Schofield and Darby, two men who began to look at the scripture and see that and think that God relates to men differently at different epochs in history. So they found seven epochs and in each of those epochs, God dealt with man differently. And so they section the Bible up into these ages. And, um, and so you, you could read those histories, and they're kind of helpful, but that's not how God relates to man now. So God doesn't relate, relate to man like he did under the Mosaic age, because that's an age of law. We're in the church age. And on top of that, there's kind of this grid that God is doing something with Israel That's different than what he's doing with the church. But he's made a bunch of promises to Israel that they take very literally, especially from Ezekiel and some of the prophets, land promises, those kinds of restoration language, and they want to apply them just to Israel. Um, The church, God is doing something totally different with. So I'm oversimplifying big time. Yeah. It is yes, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it comes with charts, <laughs> and they're quite interesting to uh, to follow along with. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Time, you know, but he made it sound. He actually linked it. He linked it to um, uh, that. You know, the, the people who believe in covenant theology, they they're the ones who reject uh, Israel as being, you know, still the chosen people. Mm-hmm. And because of them, that's how
2: Germany ended up. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. The, and, yeah. And me when I became a Christian, I'd never heard about
0: dispensational. Yeah. I, and, and but just reading the Bible, I saw Yeah. You can't help it. Yeah. The Bible, and, and like it's just funny that he's explaining it like this foreign concept. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and um, you know, classic dispensationalism like I'm describing is all but dead. Almost no one believes or practices that. What's common now is called progressive dispensationalism, which is kind of a melding of covenant theology with dispensationalism. So, um, you know, I I created a caricature of uh, classical dispensationalism that probably most dispensationalists don't hold to anymore, but it, it shows kind of the uh, stark contrast, right? There are, John MacArthur is a dispensationalist. Um, he has his own way of dealing with and working in a covenant framework that is, to me, convoluted. And, um, and it's much simpler just with covenant theology. But, uh, you know, he gets salvation right. And he's great on justification. He's great on a lot of those things. So, you know, I don't have qualms with him. Um, not saying he's a heretic because he uh, believes in dispensationalism. But what I was referring to was classical. Dispensationalism, which I do believe is wrong and leads people astray, calls
1: himself a yeah, yeah, he, he does, I think, some extent, least grace yeah yeah, yep,, mm-hmm. yeah, Bill. Right.
0: So, so it's right. And it's one story, and nobody gets to except by faith. Yeah. If you read 11, which is the, All the Faithful, it says by faith so many times you get tired of reading it. Yeah. Yep. A okay, a going to heaven? Yes. Why? By faith. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, 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 all, and in that whole list of chapters, faith demonstrates itself how? What happens? They did something, right? By faith, Abraham left Ur. And he never received the promise. He, it was all by faith, but he moved out. He didn't stay in Ur. Right? He did. His faith worked. It, it obeyed. Well what did it obey? Well, much like what James says, Yeah. You, you part. Right. So it's still all faith. Yep. Okay. Go ahead. Right. that would be like, I don't right. know if you would agree with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. simple way growing up in it, I would say that's a simplicity of why I feel like was taught, right. and that's different for yeah. us in this church or in a Reformed church. Young, yeah, yeah. Like, they, right. So. I mean, so, so much so that some modern-day dispensationalists have said in sort of like the heretic Marcion that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New. Andy Stanley said that. Um and he's a very prominent Bible teacher on the radio everywhere. Right? And he is No, no. But you know, he's he's he he it's true there was an overemphasis on Jesus extrapolated from his Old Testament context because Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament. You can't you can't flip a rock over without finding him. Um and Right. That's, yeah. That's how I would describe it. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's a, that's probably a better way to describe the effects of it for sure. Okay. So I wanted to get us. I wanted to have a, a grasp of the relationship the Christian has to the law, because it's very important. It's very important for Paul. We're sort of coming into Paul over his shoulder, looking at Timothy. He's already taught Timothy all these things. So he's just going to come in with brief little statements that are very pregnant with a lot of theology that he's already taught. So that's why we're making forays into Romans and other places to get to flesh out what Paul is saying. We're, we're going to start <laughs> the section we were supposed to do, which is starting at verse 12. And I haven't read it yet. So Paul continues. He says, I thank him... Who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. Now, so Paul begins his letters this way a lot. He starts with prayer and he begins to give thanks. And he usually outlines some emphasis that he's going to give in his letter. Almost all of his letters begin with thanksgiving. Um, and they're a prayer to God of thanksgiving. So he's giving thanks to God for strength. That comes from Christ Jesus, his Lord, because he judged him faithful, appointing him to this service. Why do you think that is important to Timothy? Why does Timothy need to know that? If you don't get strength from Jesus, where do you get it? Yourself. How long does that last? Right. So, I mean, try to do ministry, try to love your wife, try to be a faithful Christian, you know, be a father, try to be a good in your vocation. Try to do any of those things on your own strength. You're not going to get very far, right? You need the strength that comes from Christ Jesus, our Lord. And possibly Timothy's already facing hardships and difficulties. But if not, he's going to, right? He's got to confront He's got to command these people. Stop teaching this. How many like to go and confront somebody? How many like to go confront somebody when they've done something wrong? I avoid it like the plague, right? I don't want to do it. I don't want to go and confront somebody and command them to do something different. But that's what Timothy's got to do. Where is he going to get the strength to do that? Christ Jesus, our Lord, right? The risen Christ. The one who is ruling and reigning at this point right now, all of history wraps around Christ. That's the one we derive our strength from. Amen. Yeah. And so, uh, and then he encourages him also because God is the one who has appointed him to this task. And that's true of all of us, right? Who's called you to be the father that you are, or the husband, or whatever vocation you're in? God. God put you there. He appointed you into that place. Right? There's no accidents in God's plan. I used to think this, a lot this was coming out of arminianism, but it was like, "Oh shoot, I messed up. That's why I'm a landscaper because I didn't go to college and I didn't, you know, so I'm um, plan B. This is all that's left." No. But then I began to see the doctrine of vocation and recognize God has appointed me to this to this wife and these children and this job, he's appointed me to that. And that, that's empowering, right? Because you recognize it's not a mistake that you're in there and that you can work on the strength that he gives you to accomplish the tasks he's given you, right? So it's empowering. And Paul wants Timothy to see that. Look, this is, I don't have the strength to do it, and I didn't choose this. God placed me here. And um, that's an encouragement for all of us. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. What's Paul talking about? Yeah. What was he like? He was a... (laughs) Yeah. So when you are heavily invested in moralism and somebody next to you isn't what do you what do you feel like it's your responsibility to do? Kill them. Yeah. Change or die. <laughs> you know, I mean that's where moralism leads to, right? I mean this is what we this is what we see right now with woke theology and cuz i call it's a theology right it is quasi religious it has an orthodox doctrine and if you don't get in line with it you will be excommunicated from society whatever so it is a religion it's a theology and it it's very clearly moralistic and it's there's no grace right There's no coming back from that comment you made when you were 12, you know, and you said some racist snark or something. There's no forgiveness from that. You're wiped out, right? Because that's moralism. That's what moralism does. And that's exactly what Paul was, right? He was a persecutor of the church because he's got such zeal for the law, but he doesn't understand the gospel. And so he he's gonna he wants to make sure that they maintain the purity of their faith. And so he's it's not just excommunication; it's death for you. And we're dragging your family off and putting you in prison. And your life is done if you are this sect. Yes, he, he sure did, right? And, why, and that, so why does he add that little point at the end? Because so I receive mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's what he's talking about, right? He's talking about, I didn't know. I did not know that what I was doing was wrong and was actually persecuting Christ. And he, he draws our attention to his story over and over again. right? It's mentioned so many times that he was a persecutor of the church. And he's not ashamed to hide that, right? Because he wants us to know his past so we can, excuse me, understand grace. So he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. These are very harsh terms Paul takes upon himself. But he received mercy. What is mercy? If you have mercy and grace, how would you distinguish between the two? Joy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mercy is sort of the wiping out of what you deserve. Right? You deserve justice. And then grace is God coming in and giving you something you did not deserve. Mercy is wiping out what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Right? That unmerited favor. So Paul says, I received mercy, I received God's wiping out of the past. It's been forgiven, cleansed, um, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So, I mean, isn't that true of all, all people? Don't we all act ignorantly in unbelief? John. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, that's what I wanted to draw out, you know, because we could use that as an excuse. I didn't know. Bill.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And this is why, in the. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why Paul's like, you got to. Ur- I'm urging you to command these people to stop teaching this because it's so destructive. So Paul continues, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So mercy. Because he acted ignorantly, he received mercy. God wiped out what he deserved, what is God's justice. What he gets is the overflow of God's grace, washing away the filth of his being a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Right? And so, where where do we receive grace? The end of verse 14. Where is grace? Where do we find it? In Christ Jesus. Right? This is union with Christ's language. This is, why Paul, this is why Calvin can say, if you are not in Christ, if you're not united to Christ, you don't have any of His benefits. Right? Because in contradistinction to the Catholic teaching, Grace is tied to the sacramental system, right? The church dispenses grace, almost as a substance. And so you can get grace by partaking in the sacraments, right? But that's not how grace works in the Bible, right? In the Bible, grace is always connected to a person, Jesus Christ. We receive grace because we're connected to him. The sacraments are signs and seals of that, right? They, they show us you are connected. You can taste it. You can smell it. You can, it's, it's tangible. Those are signs and seals of it. But they don't, they're not the grace. That's not the grace contained in a cup that you're getting some. Otherwise, I mean, we should have big goblets, right? And a big loaf of bread. But there are signs and seals of realities that are true, but the grace is being connected to a person, Jesus Christ. You're in Christ. And so you have this overflow of grace and faith and love that are, that are found in Him. I'm going to stop there before we get to this trustworthy saying. Um, good conversation. Any questions? And we covered a lot of ground, a lot of good theology. Please stop me, at, Susan. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, this is what I was trying to emphasize, and there's different uses of the law. One, one use of the law is to restrain evil, right? So you know, how do you know that homosexuality is wrong? I mean, love e- we love each other, we're committed, you know? I mean, by, by what standard are you going to use to say that this is wrong? The law. Yeah, you point to the law and you say, well, from the beginning, God created the male and female. He instituted marriage as part of his creation, right? And so it's not—it's not as if it's even part of like some ceremonial aspect of the Mosaic law that might be done away with. It's not. It's rooted in creation. So we point to the law to restrain evil, to say this is wrong. Don't go that far. Don't. That's the law as a boundary right don't transgress it which is going over the boundary so in that sense this is the first use of the laws the reformed theologians talk about which is to restrain evil the second use is to drive us to Christ and the third use is as a rule of life that's what we spent the most time talking about but i wanted to spend time on all three of those because understanding the purpose of the laws it is confusing And Paul uses the same word law in many different ways. When he's talking in Galatians, he's not talking about law in this sense at all. He's talking about law as a Jew with ceremonial uncleanliness and cleanliness. He's talking about those ethnic markers. So he uses law in Galatians totally differently. And so if we don't understand those, we're we're liable to get really confused. Yes? Yes? Um, In my opinion, yes, but a qualified yes. Um, I would consider myself a lower T theonomy. I'm a Westminster Confession theonomist, and that the general equity of the law is always applicable. So our responsibility is not to take the case law of Israel and to try to apply it woodenly to our society, but to say, what does this case law teach? And how can we what 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 of the moral law is it an application of? And we talked about this last time with the uh, the laws around swimming pools, right, or putting a fence around a swimming pool. That's that's an application of the sixth commandment, "Thou shalt not murder," right? Um, and so, in that sense, I'm a theonomist. I think that the law should be applied to our society, um, but it, we need to do work to do there. You can't just take the case law which was given to Israel at a particular time in history and wouldingly apply it now. But we can extrapolate out and say, what were the penal sanctions that God had? Well, adultery was a capital offense. Uh, yeah. And, but there were other things that you did restitution for, right? That we don't. We put people in prison. And that's not a form of restitution, right? So you're in tax fraud, you're in there with somebody who murdered somebody, you know? So we don't have a just system because we don't go by biblical law. But so we should take biblical law, not apply it woodenly. That's what most people think of with theonomists. But we should say, what is the application to today? What is the moral law that this law is trying to apply to an agrarian society? you know, in Israel. Um and uh and then we should extrapolate out. So Susan. Okay. So it sounds like there's two categories of men, good men and Right. Well, yeah, there's no good men, but there are now. So you are not in that other category because you're righteous in Christ. This is why he says, understanding that the law is not laid down for the just, that's you, but for the lawless. So in that sense, the law is not meant to, to uh, the law is not um, uh, for you in that sense, it's not a condemnation. Right, that's what we talked all about—that our relationships to it. So our relationship has changed, so that the Paul can say the law is not laid down for the just. And um, and if you just take that in isolation, without looking at where we other places we looked, you would want to throw out the law altogether. That's not exactly what he's saying, but he's saying in this context, I'm going to show you that these kinds of lawbreakers are the ones that the law is meant to restrain. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are grateful for your word. We want to say with the psalmist, we love your law, because in it we see the very, your very character. We see your holiness and righteousness. At the same time, when we look upon the law, Father, we see our own failures. We are driven to Christ, who is our righteousness, who is the only end of the law for righteousness. And we cling to him by faith, abiding in him for the perfect righteousness that we receive. And yet, Father, as we move out, we want to obey and we learn how to obey by seeing how Christ lived and the law that he obeyed. And so we value and treasure the law as a rule of life. Teach us to view these relationships correctly so that we will not fall into works righteousness and try to earn our salvation, but that we would rest and trust in Christ alone. For we pray this in his name, amen. All right, let's prepare for worship.